0: Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast, your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host, Phil Cly, and myself, Jacob Siegel, the knocker off of Tall Hats. May you continue to be a person. Well, we've had a British lord on the program before, that was my good friend, Morris Glassman, Founder of the UK's Blue Labor Party. And today we have our first congressman, Peter Meyer. A man of many distinctions. Uh, Peter's an army veteran, a friend of both mine and Phil's. Once upon a time, a writing student of mine, and a former United States congressman from Michigan. You can place those credentials in whatever order you'd like. For our manifesto, we have Eric Hoffer's 1951 book, The True Believer. That was Peter's choice for reasons that you'll hear him explain shortly, but it's a book that I had read before on the recommendation of my father, who's a great admirer of Hoffer's, and so I was very pleased when Peter chose it and felt like I had a lot to say about it, and as you'll soon hear for yourself, it led to a great conversation with plenty of interesting and generative disagreements between the three of us. Phil and I in particular did not see eye to eye on this one. I'm not going to say too much about Hoffer now because I end up giving a mini bio on him in the course of the conversation. But suffice to say that he was a most unusual and enigmatic, a mysterious man whose writing career began when he was in his 50s. And he was working as a longshoreman, a union longshoreman in San Francisco, which had followed a period of itinerant, uh, migrant labor work on farms mining he was from new york originally but somehow made his way out west he might have been an alsatian german he might have been a jew it's all rather unclear uh what's for certain is that he was an american and as far as american philosophers go he was about as far outside the norm as you could possibly get and his style which is aphoristic rather than empirical or, or analytical or syllogistic, reflects that unique background. He wrote like somebody who just had thought a lot. He'd thought so much that he'd, he'd hardened those thoughts into polished little stones, and that was what he published. And it's um, rather unlike anything you would find from a formerly trained philosopher in the late 20th century. Our art comes courtesy of phil it's the poem on reading crowds and power by jeffrey hill published in 2007 and um, it's a short and unusual poem and more about that soon finally a word to note the manifesto is now sponsored by fairfield university a jesuit university in fairfield connecticut Fairfield's mission is to develop the creative, intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. Phil also teaches at Fairfield in both their undergraduate English department and their Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program. And we're very pleased to be associated with Fairfield and thank them for the sponsorship. With that, let's join the conversation. Former Congressman Peter Meyer my former student, I would add. I don't know which <laughs> qualification deserves top billing. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have
1: you. Thank you for having me on.
0: So, all right. I, I think we have to start there. Uh, we are going to talk about Eric Hoffer and the True Believer, and we'll get to that soon. But there's a uh, there's a, a strange set of interlocking Peter Meyer, Jacob Siegel, Phil Cly associations here. So, I guess it was about a decade ago at this point, I taught a free veterans writing workshop at the 14th Street YMHA in New York. And that was after having, you know, I guess at that point, roughly seven years after having attended a free veterans writing workshop at NYU, which is where I met Phil. Hmm. So this is right when I got back from Afghanistan, basically, I end up teaching this writing workshop at the same time I think Matt Gallagher was also teaching a teaching a writing workshop it was like everybody was getting in on it and uh and in that class which was memorable for a few reasons um Peter was like the the star student in that class and uh not my recollection but but sure I'll take it I would say you know my main memory of that In terms of the actual sort of content of the class, and I've said this on the podcast before, is that I was a bad teacher of writing, and I (laughs) couldn't figure out how to communicate some of the things that I wanted to communicate, and I I realized-
2: Jake, I think we should should underline this. You were trying to teach Peter to be a writer, and he went on to be a congressman. (laughs) Yeah. I'm
1: I'm not sure where the message got lost.
2: (laughs) Bad doesn't even describe the depths. If he'd become a drunk or an opium addict, at least he would have been in the ballpark.
0: Yeah. No, no, you're right. That's an abject failure (laughs) by any conceivable standard. Peter, tell me if you remember this. The main Mm -hmm. thing I remember is that I I thought I brought in Babel one time. I thought everybody was Mm going to be really into Isaac Babel, and I just remember the majority of the class. Not being into it at all. And I, it was like when you're 16 and you play a song for a girl and you, you're like, ah, she's going to listen to this song and then she'll get me, you know? And uh, it's like something like that. And I just,
1: was that, is that a fair assessment
0: of what went on there? I,
1: I, th- I think that's fair. I mean, you had, you had kind of, you had veteran students all different stages. Right. I mean, I recall there being folks in the class who were, you know, in their 60s and had a a spouse who was a Vietnam War veteran where they're coming at the subject matter was going to be a very different place than where a, you know, 20 something who had just gotten off of, you know, a couple of tours as an infantryman was coming at it was different than I guess where I was coming at it as a, you know, one term Iraq war member, you know, and in Columbia student, you know, so you kind of had, it was kind of like a VFW post, you know, but that just kind of ran the gamut. Uh, and so I think the maybe the intellectual engagement went from, you know, on, on one end that, um, you know, kind of boomer Vietnam vet spouse, you know, all the way to, uh, I guess we didn't have any Gen Z, but the younger millennial component. And, uh, the degree of of kind of perspective, you know, granted more by time, you know, and, and removed from the experience versus some was just like a here's what I did, this is what I was doing. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think you were kind of coming at it from a a a headier, important philosophical point, but maybe a, a place that some of them weren't ready to use or or advantage that they couldn't quite see from yet. I think that's exactly right. I also think that that image
0: of me walking into a VFW post with a Isaac Babel anthology and saying, listen up, gents, I got something to school you on here, is probably not far
2: from what went down. No,
0: I I would say that uh, I don't think that I was trying to be overly intellectual about things. I was trying to be very writerly about things and it's interesting because when Phil and I were in the workshop together, you know, I was very sensitive to not wanting to be therapized. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, and in some ways my feelings about that stuff changed over the years. But certainly at the time.
2: There's there's this idea that, like, if you're a vet, you're writing to, like, deal with your trauma somehow, which is fine if you want to yeah. do that, right? <clears throat> But and there were some
1: who were, who were yeah. doing that. Right? That was the thing. Yeah. And but
0: but I had I just didn't want that. And I would shut down anybody who approached me with that. And I was insulted by that for more. Mm. You know, I was insulted by that on the level of don't therapize to me. And I was also insulted by, like on the level, of, even if I'm a complete mess and need therapy, I'm a writer. That I, I'm writing here, you know, like we'll get. That's some other place and some other thing. So I was very sort of, um, you know, I was almost like dogmatic about that. And I was sort of militant about I'm not going to allow for that. What I realized later was it, it just, it, you know, it, th- I think that turned the people off, some people off in the class. I, mean, I didn't like, I don't think I made any enemies or anything, but I think that I was so sort of rigid about, like, I don't want to let personal emotional stuff creep into this at all.
1: Well, I mean, I I think you're being overly harsh on yourself. I mean, I I think there's a difference between not everybody was ready to receive the message versus you shouldn't have given the message. And I think for some of them, it was an important thing to, to not be... Sort of the, oh, that's cute. Look, you little veteran, you can type out words with the keyboard and, you know, they string sentences. Like, I think there's a, to your point, like some of the therapizing can be incredibly patronizing. And so making sure that that you were not patronizing or talking down to the students, I think is a benefit. If, if you know, that is not a, a failure of teaching. If anything, um, you know, teaching to the, the lowest common denominator would have been, I think, you know, insulting to some of the other students in the class. Okay, good. So uh, this is a healing moment
0: (laughs) then. Uh, The therapy comes. um, Okay, and just to wrap up this little, you know, mini memoir saga here. Then after the Veterans Writing Workshop that Peter is in, how many years later is it, Peter? Two years, something like that? A year, two years?
1: It it may have, if it was 2013, I mean, it may have been within a year. I I mean, all these kind of,
0: Within a year,
1: Peter winds up working for
0: my former NCO, now best friend, uh, at an NGO in Afghanistan. And so very strange, small veteran writer's world stuff. Um, You know, a guy who I'm still incredibly close with, who flew back from... I think I've mentioned this before. He came back from Afghanistan for like four days to come to my wedding in New York. Mm. Uh, Guy I love like a brother. So then Peter ends up working for him. Then he becomes a congressman. (laughs) Um, So there's some – I should be getting some kind of benefit from this is (laughs) what I'm driving (laughs) at. There's like some percentage I
1: should be getting here. And Phil, I think you knew my chief of staff.
2: Through Jake, again. yeah. Yeah. And I, mean, I and I interviewed you for a piece I did on the authorization for the use of military force yes. because while you were in Congress, you were one of the folks who sort of kept your eye on the ball uh, on the fact that we just kind of have this open-ended authorization, uh, which is one of my kind of perpetual complaints uh, as a cranky veteran writer who's been doing this for a while. and. So
0: yeah, but that's crazy,
2: right? I, I didn't even get to the Ken connection,
0: and then Peter's chief of staff when he became a congressman, Ken Monahan, was a friend of mine who became a friend of Phil's, who used to host writing salons yeah. at his his apartment in the financial district, where people would like uh, tell stories and do. Um, Various, you know, bohemian demimond financial district kind of activities. I, I
2: took my wife and told some very inappropriate stories. Yeah. I remember that. I was there. <laughs> I remember
0: that quite clearly. Yeah. And Joel
1: clearly fit the broken stereotype of uh, military veterans who, you know, have one note to, to hit. Yeah. And how we hit it. Okay. So. <laughs> Now let's get to uh, The True
0: Believer, and this is uh, Eric Hoffer's first book, published in 1951. Hoffer, uh, the Longshoreman Philosopher. There's a lot to say about who he was as a philosopher, as a person, the mysteries of Mm -hmm. his biography, which are deep and fascinating. But first, Peter, why this book? Why did you choose this? I
1: I think – I I appreciate this book and it well, a it's a very approachable volume right and I mean it's you know uh, maybe 30,000 words 35,000 um, and so it's not it's not the thickest tome that you need to wrestle through uh, though it is a challenging book to read insofar as if you're somebody like me who enjoys marginalia and underlining and comments on the side um, a page that can take you know a 45 seconds to read can very quickly become a take or a page that takes five minutes to fully annotate and, and kind of uh, and stain the page with your own ink. But I think in this moment, you know we have um, and, and Jake, you've written for this a little bit a, a tablet, just from the the degree of institutions and how we politically engage in institutions, there seems to be in especially a lot of the media discourse, Kind of something that's like that's missing, like a link that you don't that like there's a variable that hasn't been teased out uh, that you know I I have personally been kind of searching for to try to help better understand and explain our moment and the thing that Hoffer does I think so well in True Believer is just getting at some of the, the the inner psychology of of prior mass movements of prior you know radicals and reactionaries uh, and, and trying to understand and pick apart that component you know in 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 the world of to to offer a dimension beyond just maybe the the liberals who think that you know we're in a good moment but we could be in a better moment the conservatives that maybe are more hesitant to change and that look back on other periods and want to protect and preserve, you know, the things that are strong today and are, are maybe a little bit more wary about about the modifications the, per, the liberals want. Um, but adding in those those radicals and those reactionaries to the mix, because I think frankly those are the the cohorts that are defining our politics and that you know on. It, I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of boulderizing and I think all the the terms liberal and conservative are are I'm using them in the lowercase sense, and those are hard and necessary to define and ever shifting, you know. But but the maybe the struggle between you know the the reactionary uh, and the conservative, and between the the liberal and the radical, like those fights taking place on both sides of our aisle are what are defining the discourse relative to you know, either side of the aisle, engaging with the other. Mm. Uh, and I've, I've found that to be, um, you know, the, the amount of times I have read a passage in Hoffer and thought, oh, that's what that was that I just went through. Or that's what that what underlined that conversation, you know, the, um, the inability to interact with somebody who, you know, can't be convinced but could only be converted. Right, the the explanatory factor behind the folks who were full on Bernie Bros and then became hardcore MAGA, right? Like that, those sort of shifts and trends that aren't necessarily reflected in what the balance of power is within a body of government or in whether a state is red or blue, you know. But all of the pigments and, and gradations that are getting into that, that are so that's a
0: that's a sort of core Hoffer. Idea, right? That the the, the birdie bro to, um, MAGA, pipe. if he died in like
1: 1980, right? So yeah,
0: yeah, right. But the but Hoffer's idea of what a mass movement is and what a true believer is, um, an essential aspect of his conception of the true believer is that they can pass from one mass movement to another with relative ease because uh, essentially the condition of the true believer is at bottom a psychological condition and the um, vehicle of the mass movement is at some a kind of grand, almost meta-psychological project that connects the individual believer to a sense of uh, hope uh, Hoffer says uh, into the future, into something outside of themselves and to, uh, to what Hoffer calls a kind of grand play of of history and of time in which even death can become um, something to be acted out rather than uh, inflicted upon oneself
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a bit where he talks about the interchangeability of mass movements where he says, Hitler looked on the German communists as potential national socialists. Quote, the petty bourgeois social democrat and the trade union boss will never make a national socialist, but the communist always will. Captain Rome boasted that he could turn the reddest communist into a glowing nationalist in four weeks. On the other hand, Karl Radek looked on the Nazi brown shirts as reserve for future communist recruits. I. I, one of those things that I thought was interesting, right? And, he, and there's there's another bit where he, he talks about in how in one family, one member would join the revolutionaries, the other, the the Zionist, Dr. Haim Weissman quotes the saying of his mother in those days, whatever happens, I shall be well off. If Shemuel, the Revo- uh, who's the revolutionary son, is right, we shall all be happy in Russia. And if Haim is right, then I shall go live in Palestine. Um, I don't know how common that actually is, how many Afghanistan, for
1: it was very common. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, to have a son in the Taliban and a son in the Afghan National Army was, hmm. you know, a very logical kind of hedging of the bets. Now I, I uh, but there's, so that's uh, the
2: hedging of the bets. That's that's different from the sort of yeah. psycho- psychology that uh that uh yeah, because the, the Afghan
0: National Army wouldn't be a mass movement in the right. sense that is talking about. It's so though that's um But I I would say that, look, you have to keep in mind, this is published in 1951, right? And it belongs to a a milieu, a literary philosophical milieu at the time of totalitarianism, of mass movements, Uh, Ortega y Gasset, uh, Hannah Arendt, um, uh, what's the guy's name, Virek, Vivrek. I forget the American conservative I'm mispronouncing it. Um, Vogelin to some extent, um, Raymond Aron is writing about this jail. Tallman is writing about this, uh, uh totalitarian democracy. There's a, and, and about messianism in politics. This is, this is in the immediate aftermath of the second world war. This is at the height of the Soviet union. Um, and so the, the, the world at the moment in which Hoffer is writing this seems to be a world that is completely dominated by mass movements and that form a, if not a unified block in opposition to liberalism, then a sort of an archipelago outside of liberalism yeah. where they're connected to each other but opposed to the the liberal idea.
2: And also sort of with the, the people inside the mass movement are kind of impervious to kind of the liberal idea of like there's a marketplace of ideas and the best ideas are going to win and that's just not that's just not operative whatsoever. I mean, maybe it's worthwhile kind of going through cuz I I enjoyed this book. I enjoy how he writes. Um, he's got a style to him that I like. But I think I I think I disagreed constantly throughout the book but found it very sort of productive. Um, And he's even sort of admits like, he's like, uh, you know, the reader's likely to feel much has been exaggerated and much uh, ignored. But this is not an authoritative textbook. It's a book of thoughts and it does not shy away from half-truths as long as they seem to hint at a new approach and help formulate new questions. To illustrate a principle, says Bagot, you must exaggerate much and you must omit much. So anyway, um, but maybe just to sort of outline what he thinks allows you to make up a mass movement. So you've got like an individual who's dissatisfied with the contemporary order, right? They feel their life is spoiled, right? It's not just, I don't like the current government, but like my life is spoiled because of the forces that are around me, right? You have a charismatic leader. You think that the the mass movement has some sort of like powerful technique or Ideology, you know, like, um, either you have like the communist ideology, which is like this powerful view of how history operates, it's going to achieve everything for you. Or if you're the Nazis, the ideology is kind of a mess, but you have this sort of great instruments of sort of the mechanism of power. Um, you have in like hope in the future where your like tarnished identity is going to be, um, somehow made whole, right? Uh, and a total surrender of the distinct self, and that is, yeah. And I, I think that last
1: part is the really the key. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the distinctly Hoffer aspect of it. Yeah, the the mass is implicitly anti-individual. Yes. Right. The, the individual has to suborn their identity in order to join sort of that that
2: movement, right? Yeah. And which is why, by the way, he's so a lot of my quibbles come with mass. You know, as I'm thinking of, through this this through, my quibbles with this tend to come from his, like, almost feels like a kind of reactionary individualism that you get in this book where I know he says, I'm just sort of outlining things, but it, it doesn't seem to incorporate mass movements that are about the empowerment of the individual. Right. So, um, all well, I think that, if anything, he, he says mass movements that like,
1: once they begin to liberalize or once that that individual component, and this I thought was a little mm-hmm. bit weak and I'm freaking in the page, you know, it's like that's when they're at their most dangerous or their most vulnerable, right? It's the liberalizing authoritarian, you know, that-, that Right, the most vulnerable. vulnerable, I think you yeah. would say. Not the most dangerous, but that's when they uh, uh, can
0: fall uh, apart and, yeah. and become weak, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, he says, all mass movements generate in their adherence a readiness to die and a proclivity for united action. All of them, irrespective of the doctrine they preach and the program they project, breed fanaticism, enthusiasm, fervent hope, hatred, and intolerance, all of them capable of releasing a powerful flow of activity in certain departments of life. All of them demand blind faith and single-hearted allegiance. And I was thinking about this. So, <clears throat> you know, the, the first thing that came to mind was like the civil rights movement or the American revolution, the social transformations that follow, right? Because Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Gordon Woods' The Radicalism of the American Revolution, but one of the points that he makes is that the revolution wasn't just a sort of military sort of martial exercise and and democratic change, but entailed social revolutions as well, right? So that emphasized equality as a social principle. You have this society that is used to a particular structure and hierarchy. The common man is commonly denigrated by, you know, like Self-styled natural aristocrats as the common herd, which was what Adams called them, or the grazing multitude, which is what Washington called them. And then you have, especially in the in the North, um, which has a less, far less list aristocratic structure than than the South for obvious reasons. You've got these like sort of more populist folks. Uh, he quotes one George Warner, who is a sailmaker, who's speaking for all tradesmen, mechanics, and the industrious classes of society, who for too long considered themselves of too little consequence to the body politic. And they spent like half of a century after the revolution organizing themselves in mechanics associations and democratic republican societies, stripping the northern gentry of their pretensions, arguing that if you're rich, you shouldn't be elected into congress um uh, and that that for wood is the is the true revolution. I'm thinking about that, and it's clearly a mass movement, right, but to fit that into the Kind of psychological categories that that Hoffer is. in. I don't think he
0: would, though. I don't think. Uh, i I think that might be a category error. I don't think. I don't think that's what Hoffer means when he's. T- First of all, he, he was a trade unionist. Yeah, and uh, not just a member of the Longshoremen's Union. So the very very brief description of Hoffer's life is. Appropriate here because some of it, it partially explains the strangeness of his style also. Mm-hmm. So he's got this very aphoristic writing style, this epigrammatic writing style that is not, you know, it's not empirical or evidentiary or essayistic. Um, it's a series of aphorisms that are clearly the the concentrated form of considered deliberate reflection. And as Peter pointed out, they're easy to read, uh, but as Phil pointed out, they stick with you right. and they're, they're not glib and I, they go down easily. Uh, but there is more to them actually than, than maybe you get in first appearance. Very briefly, he's born, We don't know where. He says he's born in New York to Alsatian German parents. There's some dispute about that, but let's assume he's born in New York in the Bronx to Alsatian German parents. He claims that he goes blind at the age of five or at the age of seven. He later miraculously and inexplicably recovers his sight. His parents die by the time he's 18. He's like, all right, peace, I'm going to California. You know, a uh, young man goes west. He <laughs> is on a, a mining expedition. He's had no formal education at this point. He's on a mining expedition and decide he goes to a used bookstore before he heads up on the mountain for the mining expedition, buys the thickest book he can find just because he's like, well, I'm going to be on a mountain for a month or whatever. You know, let me keep myself entertained. So he finds a Two volume Montaigne uh, collection buys a Montaigne, not knowing who he is, and essentially that's his self education on a mining expedition. Reading Montaigne, He, he goes from there, he he winds up, he's like doing itinerant farming for a while, then he's on Skid Row in Los Angeles, or, or what is it, the Skid Row outside of San Diego at some point. Anyway, at some point he claims while he's living on Skid Row, he teaches himself Hebrew and botany. And now the fact that he apparently spoke or understood Hebrew and was also later in life a very ardent uh, Zionist Convinced some people that he was actually Jewish or secretly Jewish. Um, there's no direct evidence of that. It does seem a little bit strange that he would learn to uh, speak Hebrew and learn botany while living on Skid Row. But hey, listen, the thing I love about all of this is just that it's all perfectly American. Yeah. Is every American has the right to self invention? If he wanted to be a Skid Row, um you know philo semite philo zionist alsatian that's what he gets to be who am i to tell him any different
1: i'm a
0: free
1: boy.
0: Um, But he had a strange life, let us say. And so then after all that, he winds up in San Francisco at the age of like, I think it's in his late 40s, only because of the disruptions caused by the war. There's an opening in the Longshoremen's Union. He joins the Longshoremen's Union, which he wouldn't have been able to get into otherwise, which he loves because, you know, Longshoremen get to make their own hours to some extent. So he can write when he wants to write. Uh, He works on the docks when he wants to work. You know, continues his education. He publishes The True Believer in his early 50s, I believe, and begins then this second life as the longshoreman philosopher. And so he's a great mystery of a man. Um, he had a, a friendship or some kind of correspondence with Hannah Arendt and with some other people, but he was sort of at some point became loathed by a lot of people on the left, even though he had originally been thought of as somebody – Possibly on the left, though his his politics were enigmatic. Um, But I say all of this in part to set up that that peculiar singular life produced what I think was a fairly singular, very American political and philosophical sensibility in which in which he was not opposed to free association and he was not opposed to um, solidaristic, you know, collective action per se, right, like the the civil rights movement or other kinds of uh, associative movements. He was opposed to mass movements, mass in this case meaning movements in which Individuals sought to vanquish their self identity and join in a collective. And now you can, you could say that that is itself reactionary if you wanted to, I'm sure, but it's, I want to make the distinction that he's not opposed to forms of um, group or, or, or even, you know, collective, if you want to use that word, politics. He's opposed to collectivism Mm -hmm. if it involves the, uh, denigration and eradication of the individual and of the self. To your point,
1: the perfectly American story, if if anything, maybe a little bit too perfectly American, (laughs) like suspiciously perfectly American. There's a lot of just so components to his biography, including the, the becoming the voracious reader because loses his sight, regains his sight, is paranoid. He's going to re-lose his sight. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I I won't look the gift horse too much in the mouth. I think there was something about, he had an heir who was going to do some ancestry tests and the, um, uh, the widow or or ex-wife was like, I wouldn't do that. And they didn't. I mean, there's just a lot of things that are are kind of very weird, but, you know, I guess trying to to square the circle a little bit on Phil, kind of your approach of, you know, he, he does kind of glide past. Well, I guess he was, this is, you know, precedes, you know, the mo- the bulk of what we would consider the civil rights movement um but the you know i i don't even know that he touches on the sort of positive social change like hey we're we're going to improve the system i think he's much more focused on how do people just tear everything down or to choose to rebuild it and kind of what goes into those well,
2: he components does, yeah he does note some positive effects and he does point out that like the capacity to resist coercion stems partly from the individual's identification with a group. The people who stood up best in the Nazi concentration camps were those who felt themselves members of a compact party, the communists, of a church, priests, and ministers, or of a close-knit national group, the individualists, whatever their nationality, caved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's, he's. Um, it's not 100%, but I think there's a, there's a kind of there are parts that read almost sort of cynical to me, right? Like the less justified a man is in claiming excellence of his own self, the more ready he is <clears throat> to claim all excellence for his nation, his religion, his race, or a holy cause. A man is likely to mind his business when it is worth minding. When um, uh, Faith in a holy cause to a considerable extent, uh, it's a substitute for lost faith in ourselves. And, um, and then there, there's a part where he basically just argues like, There is, (laughs) there's nothing worth dying for, right? (laughs) That the only reason uh, you would ever um, be self-sacrificial is because we see ourselves as actors in a staged and therefore unreal performance, right? The readiness of self-sacrifice is contingent on an imperviousness to the realities of life. Um, so, and it's that, and it's not like there's not a component of that that is true, right? That sort of people act out roles, um, in an attempt to be the thing that they're acting out, right? Um, and having a kind of narrative that you can slip into at moments of crisis is actually important for people being able to to sort of rise to occasions. But it does kind of assume, I think, a, a sort of falsity in our connections to others, right? A sort of individualism cut off from the rest of humanity um, where we're all isolate, but dependent on the imagination for everything that I think human beings desperately need and want, which is actually sort of connection and solidarity with other people. So um yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those books where, I found myself constantly intellectually stimulated by it, but sort of troubled because if you go down the road as as hard as he does, the picture of humankind that it presents is one that I fundamentally reject.
0: I think uh, I think you're going to have to revisit this. I think you <laughs> I think you've you've misread it. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. So, for instance, the passage that you read uh, in relation to self sacrifice. He's talking specifically about self-sacrifice in relation to an abstract collective cause, right? And because the book is written in this aphoristic style, where he's making these extraordinarily grand, sweeping statements, you know, it's very easy to read that as applying to perhaps all forms of, of sacrifice. But that's, I think, that's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's not. Um, He's not talking there about the – what you might call the limited or localized or instrumental sacrifice of one good for another. He's talking about a highly conceptualized, abstracted form of self-sacrifice, which takes effect only in these mass movements. And in terms of this sort of like uh, – Jake,
2: Jake. Yes. Yes. To our real naked selves, there is not a thing on earth or in heaven worth dying for. I, I like your interpretation better and I'll go with it, but I don't think that's what he's saying.
0: I think that is what he's saying. Okay. Because when he's saying to our real naked selves, like I, I remember that passage quite clearly. I know that passage. What he's talking what he's counterposing there is the sort of like stark individual utilitarian calculation of what would i die for which is nothing right like if you leave it's naked is what's the sort of operative word okay there. yeah the naked self right is the self who is has no attachments mm-hmm. right and the self who has no attachments who's purely interested in self-preservation is going to cling to bare life above all else and so to separate that naked self from the instinct to self-preservation, you introduce the mass movement, introduces this sort of grandeur, this spectacle, this drama in which life and death are a kind of play. But the thing that it connects this, I think the thing that sort of- um,
2: by, the, by the way, that, that, that aspect of life, life and death being a kind of play, I do think is really compelling and sort of interesting- when you think about um, th- think about how mass movements function, and also like the, the importance of aesthetics to mass movements, yeah,
0: yeah, right. A- aesthetics is this sort of that's the the visual medium of the you know it's it's how you you know it's like actors talk about when they get into you know they put on the the wig or they put on the mustache or whatever they feel like the other person. I mean, there's a real effect of that, but but the layer that I think is missing in that analysis also is that Hoffer, I can't remember at which point in the book, I think it's earlier than that point about, um, you know, the death spectacle. Prior to that, he, he says on a number of occasions that what makes people vulnerable to mass movements, what makes them susceptible to mass movements, is the loss of the traditional and the communal relations, which the mass movements, uh, you know, then prey on. So he's he's not he's talking about people who have been turned into kind of deracinated individuals okay. who are then drawn into the mass movements. He's not saying that the alternatives okay. are collectivism or atomized individuals. You know,
2: I I, I will ex- for the purpose of moving forward, I'll, I will accept that reading. Okay, so I'm not 100% sure. All right, I'm on Team Jake here.
0: It's settled, it's ready. settled,
1: but but there is a degree of cynicism, and, and I love the little digs and asides at the British Labour Party and their kind of austerity yeah, yeah, measure. But... Um, which granted a little bit dated, but I I enjoy. But you know, when he says the spokesmen of democracy offer no holy cause to cling to and nor corporate whole to lose oneself in. Communist Russia can easily turn Japanese war prisoners into fanatical communists, while no American propaganda, however subtle and perfect, can turn them into freedom-loving Democrats, right? So that, that idea that for the fanatic, you know, there's no, uh, if, if you're only, if you want to have, if anything, it's, it's basically saying libertarians are a fool, right? Or anybody who seeks to to kind of have a, a, a movement um, just achieve something and then disband, rather than the the mass movement being a, a a goal and a motive force in and of itself, irrespective of whatever it is it's hoping to accomplish. Like the yeah. the, the direction it's going in is less important than the fact that there is a direction. Period.
2: You, you, you know, there's um, there's a great um, review by. Um, John Baskin, where he talks about Nausgaard and and Terence Malick in in uh, A Hidden Life, um, which is about Franz Jägerstatter, who is a sort of Austrian farmer and, and devout Catholic who refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II, and he, and Baskin is talking about sort of aesthetic responses to fascism, I mean, and 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 there's a bit where he goes into a certain type of critics like. Incompre- like utter inability to understand the film or Uh, And this is from Baskin's uh, piece. How does Franz achieve this moral sanity? That is the central question of a hidden life. And it is in how he addresses it that Malick's critics find special cause for complaint. A.O. Scott, who reviewed the film, at the end of his review, confesses that his incomprehension of Franz's motives may be related to his personal preference for, quote, historical and political insight over matters of art and spirit. It is refreshing to hear a critic be so honest about their intellectual biases. It's also revealing of the assumptions that seem to pervade the broader discussion in recent years carried on mostly by academics and op-ed writers as opposed to artists about the relationship between the politics of 1930s Europe and those of our own time. But what if the capacity to appreciate the relevance of Nazism to our own time is in fact inseparable from our willingness to attend seriously to matters of art and spirit?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I I certainly buy, I, yeah. I'm not. It, it depends on how you mean it. You know, I, <laughs> I, like uh, I certainly buy that there's a. Um, I've gone back and forth on this myself. I, the degree to which sort of the there's an er fascism that is perennial and um, and I I have wrestled with that, and I'm not sure exactly where I land now. But I would say certainly that there's a sort of um, the, the the best book in this genre that we were describing before the mid century um, survey of mass movements in the in the wake of um, in the wake of Auschwitz in the wake of the Second World War in the wake of Stalinism. It, for me, the best book uh, you know, one of the best books ever written is Camus' um, The Rebel.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, mm-hmm. I. I um, I think just captures everything and then goes beyond it. And um, Camus certainly is describing this sort of er form of the totalitarian impulse and how it evolves philosophically, what its roots are, the various stages it passes through, the way in which one can find strains of it in romanticism, in dandyism, uh, you know, certainly in Jacobinism. Um, and I still believe that, and I still see that. Um, but I think that, you know, the mass movement, Nazism, Stalinism, those sorts of mid century mass movements really did belong to a certain form of political economy, and the social formations that arose out of that political economy, which simply doesn't exist anymore. And so the impulse persists and that's deeply significant. I, I don't mean to trivialize it um, because the impulse finds the way to manifest itself. And that's the, the impulse is contained within human beings and is, a, is, is simply a reaction to existence. And it finds ways to manifest itself that are um, that are persistent and and inventive. But the thing that Hoffer does that I like, in part, because it's so aphoristic, you know, I, to me it feels like a uh, a book that is describing. The preconditions of mass movements in the true believer more than it is more than it is um trying to deconstruct this sort of organizational or philosophical method of the movement itself i mean it's in the title the true believer so yeah, I don't know. This is something I've gone back and forth on, you know, and I think about it in relation, to, you know, what Peter started off talking about in the political situation in America and how seriously to take certain uh, elements of um, millenarian or um, illiberal rhetoric and and positioning in American life. And it's I'm still trying to work it out for myself, you know.
1: I mean, I think one one big difference between the sort of mid-century moment that Hoffer was writing in and today, I mean, the the two words or three words that come up, I think, so frequently in this book, you know, one, deracinated to talk about sort of the individuals that are most mm-hmm. susceptible. And we certainly live in a moment of a surplus of, of deracinated individuals, but also that, that deprecating of the present as sort of a, conditional or a precondition, right? You have to look at the present as as flawed, as as spoiled, as you know, irredeemable and want something dramatically different. But then also the word corporate, right? To to either describe, you know, the status quo, but more to to describe the sort of institutional or kind of organizing um, component of these mass movements. I mean, they were, I mean he, he talks about corporate Christianity in the early church he talks about kind of that the corporate nature of the communist movement uh, I feel like if anything this moment is is very there's very little that's that's corporate
2: mm-hmm. right and, and if we
1: kind of survey the field you know you have you certainly have, you have millenarianism on on the left and the right I mean you have sort of the uh, I, I would argue a lot of the environmental, radicals you know believe in that type of millenarianism millenarianism with you know the world's going to end in five years if we don't do this we're on the cusp you know there's a degree of that too in some of the kind of more fanatical QAnon components that that we're just around the corner of this sort of apocalyptic doom that either on the one hand we must prevent or you know we need to be ready to usher in usher in you know to kind of rise up right but I, I guess I I read this in the present moment of just thinking, man, our mass movements are kind of lame. Like, <laughs> they're just they're not um, they're not that mass. They they can they can take a a, a minority of a majority. Um, but because I, I, there's I, no masses anymore. Because the masses yeah.
0: were a twentieth century industrial economy phenomenon. Yeah. And masses don't exist anymore. And so uh, we're, look, we're somewhere now between masses and swarms, right? The next thing, and, and the thing that is consolidating itself now, that is coalescing now, is the digital swarm. And we're all t- watching it form itself. And we may end up looking back, teary eyed, wishing for the sweetness and innocence. Of twentieth century mass movements, once the swarm has its way with us, but that's the thing that is taking shape now.
2: But it's you want to explain what you mean by the digital swarm?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, look, first of all, let's define what a mass was. A, a mass was a, uh, a a body of a physical manifestation, like a, a body of people who were grouped together in certain institutional and public settings, and who could be um, compelled to act, uh, act violently, act disruptively um, by movement leaders, and whose relationship to one another, and I think this is one of the sort of critical points whose relationship to one another was structured within ideological movements um, uh, uh, that had a relationship to the sort of uh, ideological movements that were efforts to mobilize um, society. Communism and fascism, both in their ways, are modernization uh, you know, communism in particular in the Russian context is a, a kind of hyper-modernization uh, project. You know, there's a whole, uh, there's an interesting sort of academic discourse about the relationship between uh, German fascism in particular and and uh, Russian communism. German fascism is distinct from the Italian and Spanish species of fascism, but without getting into all of that, the 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 you know the masses were essentially sort of industrial uh, bodies that related to industrial forms of political and economic organization. Swarms are um, <laughs> swarms are uh, ways in which uh, digital networking has brought people together in um, rather opaque uh, social formations that seem to have little sort of connective tissue in the way that masses once had connective tissue that kept them together in between eruptions, like a a mass of people in, uh, let's say, mid-century... Russia belonged to certain organizations in common, had certain party duties they had to fulfill, had uh, workers' collectives they were part of, were connected to each other in fairly clearly delineated ways, even if there were workarounds for those. Um, The swarm is a, uh, a digital presence, a purely digital presence, even if it can sometimes have... Um, secondary effects in the physical world the swarm is a way in which multitudes of people are brought together online through scalable forms of digital networking in order to uh, in order to to coordinate pressure campaigns uh, typically cultish in nature to cancel people to uh, uh enunciate a certain slogan, which is the slogan of the moment. Now you can agree with the Swarm's slogan that it's picking up at the moment. You can disagree with the the Swarm's slogan, but the the point is the social formation, not whether, you know, the point is watching um, the entire sort of the entire social formation on a platform like Twitter converge within the matter of a day or a week on a particular slogan. It's watching the entire uh, the entire platform decide that a certain person is evil and needs to be denounced. Or, or more simply like
2: that, that, that like gas stoves are either a left-wing or right-wing issue. I don't know if you – at some point, yeah, like there I, you go. I missed a day of discourse, and then it was like right-wing people were defending gas stoves and left-wing people were like – skeptical of the health benefits of gas stoves and it just seemed like what are are the underlying
0: what are the underlying structural conditions of that swarm that might be analogous to a mass movement it's opaque right it's hard to figure out basically you're talking about twitter's algorithms or facebook's algorithms are now the determinative structures in part in which within which this kind of political organization takes place Um, so it's just a fundamentally a different, at this point, still quite strange thing, um, that I think concentrates power in the hands of a much, much, much smaller group of people. I mean, I've said a lot without getting to that point, which is pretty essential, but like, you know, the mass movements were, even when they were, even when they were you know, murderously anti-liberal, we're, we're all democratic in a sense. We're all sort of um, products of the democratic spirit of the 20th century insofar as they empowered the masses. The swarm is something different.
1: I, 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 don't, I, just, I would push back on what the actual power that the swarm has. I mean, it certainly has power in the digital world. And, 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 you know, you've seen um, kind of physical manifestations of power and authority, you know, maybe tip their hat in the direction, right? Adopt some language or or otherwise do something to sate the appetite of the swarm. But by and large, I mean, there aren't physical manifestations, the, the, the online movement, I mean, setting aside you know things like the egyptian revolution right that we saw in 2013 like there have been ways in which the 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 online has been used to create um and 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 organize and be a a uh, the trigger to a convening mechanism in the real world but it also feels like most of the online discourse you know If you're part of the ten percent of the country that's on that platform, you may see it, you may love it, you may hate it, you may just scroll past it to find the latest on whatever K-pop you know celebrity you're obsessed with, or you know a a sports uh, issue of the day. But but and I think that's like so much of the power of that in the shaping of the discourse is only because there are folks who. Right in, 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 journalistic circles yep. or maybe our political officials, you know, who are overly sensitive to it. But also half of those things are forgotten a week later. And it's just let like, me, a me, weird. let me give
2: you an example. Cause I think, and, and I brought up the example of, of stoves, right? There was like a blow up about gas stoves that I never bothered to get to the bottom of. I don't even, I would, I would guess like most of the people who took a strong stance against this, the stoves they're probably still using gas stoves if they had them and maybe have forgotten that they did that, right? Um there's a there's a way in which, you know, I I my first novel, Missionaries, two of the characters are are Colombian, right? And so um uh and I'm writing in the first person from their perspectives, and you know, when I wrote the book, my Uh, publishing house was like, oh, you know, because the the American dirt thing had happened. They were like, you know, Mm -hmm. just, you know, in case you get like cultural appropriation questions, you know, are you prepared to respond to that? I was like, yeah, okay, I, I can do that. And what's interesting is for the most part, as I went about and like, you know, did the publicity for the book, whatever, I never, with the exception of like one marginal case, got any kind of hostile pushback on that at all. But I was frequently asked by people like sympathetic to me if I'd gotten pushback, right? And I think that it's not that like like the American dirt thing obviously happened and, and was this big blow up that you know, had a huge impact on that author, but then the book went on to be like a massive bestseller. And I think that people have internalized things in the attitudes of the swarm as if they are real when -hmm. they're not. And I mean, this is not a original observation, but in terms of like, um, you know, like Joe Biden was the democratic candidate whose campaign seemed like least responsive to the online swarm messages of the left. Right. Um, and that turned out to be, you know, an electoral winner for him. Uh, I, I, I suppose the question is whether these, you know, as we sort of move forward in time, uh, and you have younger generations that are more accustomed to social media, whether that will actually have more genuine bite in terms of democratic politics. But I think the very shallowness of that style of digital engagement argues against it as being like, a strong political force, though it is one that I think we can sort of, we can psych ourselves into changing how we behave, changing how we write. I know tons of writers who are afraid of all kinds of subjects, right? And I don't think they have to be. Um, Well,
1: if I can, I think there's a, there's a way of, of picking up both sort of the nature of the swarm, the question of the, the real impulse and just that, like frankly what i think with well, the the sort of atomized member of a mass movement right so i mean the, the individuals who are spread all around who before might have had a crazy thought and then discarded it and now can find you know other mm-hmm. adherents yeah. online and say aha see and and in something i came to far too late i mean he talks about it they, those folks can't be convinced they can only be converted, right? Like you, you cannot try to argue in a logical, rational fashion with somebody who needs to believe what they believe, right? Where it's not a question of, of just presenting additional information. And I find this all the time with, you know, people argue with me about January 6th and I'm like, I mean, I was there, right? I mean, I hope that counts for something, but what I think is so interesting you, though. You were
2: not convinced it, by the Tucker tapes.
1: I, 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 no. They're like, well, did you see this video? I'm like, okay, did you see it in these other videos? And I, I literally talked to folks who have not seen anything other than. Or
0: you were convinced, I assume also not convinced by the comparisons to 9 11 since you were there, which are I the institutional position, right? Like the Tucker tapes are the. Um, the radical position, the institutional position enunciated by Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris is that this was the equivalent of the American Civil War
1: and of nine eleven well and that 's where the, the most untenable position to be in a highly polarized environment is a skeptic you know of is trying to say uh, uh, okay, you know to get to the january sixth it's like it was bad. Was it the worst thing in the world? No, was it no big deal? no you know, but you're basically forced to choose between 9-11 or it was just a sunny Tuesday. And there's nothing in between those two. But, you know, I think of, you know, getting back to that point on just the the individual component that kind of gets whipped up, like the thing that's different now, I mean, what the swarm is most anathema to is the moderating effect of the water cooler, right? And I think, Phil, to your point on on people talking to you, you know, it does become self-perpetuating mm-hmm. in that if you shape your 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 actions because you're worried about an imaginary reaction, it's granting that power. But I also, I mean, we would you lose in that online environment is somebody who's who's sitting there with a cup of water, you know, on, on a break from work and saying, like, I don't know, man, that sounds kind of crazy. And the person's like, Oh. OK, yeah, maybe it is, you know, th- no one's going to say that in the midst of an online discourse. I mean, some some kind of professional skeptics will and the people who love standing athwart whatever the movement of the day is um, will. And and you always need those folks to pour cold water on, on an idea, you know, but they're pouring cold water on a fission reaction. Right. And it's it's way out of proportion with the intensity that's created. Look, the technology itself was not designed to.
0: Enable that kind of moderating influence, and the same reason why it could once be touted as a revolutionary force in Egypt is the reason why it's the same technological infrastructure um, which had had that purpose in mind from the beginning. I mean, look, I have mentioned to you guys earlier; I have a big piece on the counter disinformation complex coming out probably by the time this episode drops, it'll be in tablet, um, where I I get into this at, at great great length and all I can say now without um like turning this into a two-hour rant is that I wish that you were right but I believe that you are very very wrong and the reason why I believe that you're wrong is not because there's no element of distortion and so um no element of distortion or slippage between virtual symbolism and real world. There obviously is. There are things that take place online that people get very rattled by. They simply ought to walk away from and go outside and take a breath of fresh air.
1: But Touch grass, if you will. Yes. But we have,
0: for one thing, um, we've just lived through a radical, utterly transformative migration Onto the internet, more profound than what had even preceded it mm-hmm. during COVID and the lockdowns. Um, during which time these already world historically powerful companies became even more world historically powerful, where more and more human activity was migrated online. Um, so so that's one thing. The Argument that the discourse is that the discourse online is not representative of the real world, therefore, loses its validity as more and more of what constitutes the real world is mm-hmm. now displaced onto the internet. Also, you know, it sounds to me like things people used to say about uh, academia and about sort of mm-hmm. campus eruptions and is there a way of being overreactive to campus eruptions? Yes. Is there a way of being, you know, overly dramatic about their significance? Surely there is, but these are also the, the training and credentialing grounds for the next generation of, uh, American federal officials, um, administrators, bureaucrats, uh, you know, leaders in whatever corporate fields. So, what goes on on the campus while not a perfect representation of normal real life is indicative of where normal real life is going in a in a sort of trendline sense and the the
2: or indicative the of the concerns the of American elites. Is that yeah. They
0: can't be just the, uh, a final thing. The thing with these swarms is they can't necessarily be evaluated solely in terms of their putative claims. So the gas stove thing, for instance, which seems like just another ridiculous culture war, like, oh, we're just picking the dumbest possible things to erupt about. What was underlying the gas stove thing is actually the green economy stuff that you were talking about, Peter, and you know serious geopolitical uh, decisions relating to American energy independence, relating to you know purchasing, essentially investing in the Chinese solar industry, yeah,
1: right, regular and regulatory decisions too. I mean, yeah, like, like it was. This this moment of discourse that I think, you know, I mean, we can we can sort of dismiss it, but there were also attempts to concretize the discourse in physical real world action because you had, oh, nobody's arguing about gas stoves. And then the, well, but if they are arguing about gas stoves, there's a good reason to get rid of them. And it was really spurred by this community project or community Pro- consumer product safety commission, sort of uh, the commissioner making an offhand comment. And then after that reaction was sort of spurred you know it uh, started to get a little bit of steam or or you know they were cooking with gas you know then it became oh well maybe we will put a decision out about this so i'm not yeah. dismissing the fact that it has real world implications it, but it is i guess my i'm just skeptical that mass movements that will truly be enduring will be formed by that because i think people go to the swarm because of their incredible boredom And I think this is the quote that I loved. When people are bored, it is primarily with their own selves they are bored. The consciousness of a barren, meaningless existence is the main fountainhead of boredom, but also to a deliberate fomenter of mass upheavals, the report that people are bored stiff should be at least as encouraging as that they are suffering from intolerable economic or political abuses, right? And I think that sort of the swarm is a, a brief venting of that boredom. But I also, I I think Jake, you're absolutely right that you have to be wary of what that is doing in the formative minds of elites. I'm just skeptical that the swarm can truly convince people to at at a mass level. Right? I mean, there can be brief convening moments, but at a mass level, sustain something. I think it's
0: totally unsustainable, though. But that's the the swarm makes people weak. Reliant, jittery, scattered, uh, hyper, parent like it's—it doesn't create an enduring movement of any kind. It just makes people pliable and exploitable. And uh, in the same way that the, you know the sort of mass movement was a surrogate for true forms of free association, yeah, that was Hoffer was saying. You know, the the swarm comes in, and it's like. You can't even have the mass movement now. We're just getting farther and farther away from the kinds of free, nourishing human connections that mm-hmm. build
2: meaning. Okay, so so if that's true, so we used to to ask like uh, ourselves, you know, if you were to live by this manifesto, what would you do, right? Which we haven't asked. That's so
0: funny, man, because I was thinking like the first time in like two years, I was thinking we should ask that again. Actually,
2: yeah.
1: A little bit easier with this than with scum.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, at scum is pretty easy. How would you would live if well, you?
1: Prescriptively you know, yeah. hard, hard for yeah. you guys. Yeah. Hard yeah. for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um. So, you're a congressman, right? Practically, how do you, how do you respond to this current environment and try and behave in a way that is befitting of a sort of democracy? You know, the representative in a, in a, in a democracy. In response to these kinds of forces, and and I think it should be prefaced with I
1: was a one-term congressman and I lost my primary by granted by three points. But
2: okay, but can, actually, um, it's, it's probably worth. Can we talk about what happened after
1: some insane
2: dirty tricks? Because <laughs> I, I think uh, I think that that's actually worth worth discussing in yeah. the context of this. So, uh, I, the the Democrats. Ran ads hyping your opponent, who was a more extreme Trump election denial. Hyping the Ma- the Democrats backed the MAGA
0: guy to split the vote. I believe
2: they spent more on hyping his campaign than he spent himself. Right? Correct. Yeah. And then he defeated you in the primary and lost in the general, which is why they. Hype because he, Pretty they massive. thought that he was an easier opponent to beat, right? And so it was sort of and you know, you, you can say, well, you know, that's it's the Republicans' fault if they elected a bad candidate, which is true, right? Uh but at the same time one would think that we have obligations um <laughs> to t- not to not to create those kind of risks. We have obligations sort of as as, as people who d- believe in democracy and if we think that election denialism really is a, a terrible thing. Um, but yeah, and, uh, is that a fair summary of, of what happened?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty fair. I mean, I, my um, and, and it is true. I mean, sort of the, well, I will say the defense of that sort of, uh, you know, promoting the least electable candidate and I always make the point, you know, less electable doesn't mean unelectable, you know, but it also has the, has the flip side and I'll, I'll get into this in a second, but, but the, the defenses are, you know, before it was, Oh no, we're just doing some, this is the guy who's going to win. We're doing general election messaging early. And then it was, ha see our meddling strategy paid off. And then, well, but you know, obviously that person did get votes. Right. But you know, for a party that, um, uh, had been saying that a couple hundred dollars worth of Facebook ads by Russians changed the outcome of the 2016 election, you know, that then a couple hundred thousand dollars, well, that was just going to be inevitable. There's just a very, you know, deep bad faith component of that, but what it also kind of drives, and I saw this in my time in Congress with colleagues who, you know, they very quickly realized, and maybe I held out naive hope but they very quickly realized, I'm gonna get shit from the other side regardless, right? I could do, I could be at a hundred, I could be one. The fact that I have a different letter next to my name is going to make no difference in the world how I'm treated. So I might as well not do things to incur that same wrath from my own side, right? And that, that sort of instills a sense of hyper kind of polarization Oftentimes at odds with how that individual member may actually feel, and and so I think where my frustration, you know, in this moment was uh, was the sense of you know, okay, January sixth was sort of uniquely bad, and we shouldn't just treat it like another partisan issue, right? Not not 11 bad, to be clear. But, you know, when people start dying, you should say, okay, you know what, like this is not fun and games, like this has, like blood is being spilled. And the challenge there of realizing that the partisan nature or partisan view of an issue on one side automatically translates into the other side, treating it as equally partisan. And and you can go back and forth on who started what, but the, the sense that nothing can escape that sort of corporate uh, you know, I, a lot of kind of maga folks and folks on the right like to talk about the uniparty. You know, as sort of the, the the blending of like the Mitch McConnell, you know, establishment Republicans and and the establishment Democrats. I think if anything, you know, the uniparty is the equilibrium that says, well, which side are you on? You're you're, you're with us or you're against us. Uh, and I think also driven by one of the best ways of gaining loyalty and a following within your own side is the amount of visceral hatred you incur and you can cultivate from the other side of the aisle, right? That establishes your bona fides, Uh, you know, Hoffer talked about that with the, you know, the best yardstick. I think this was Hitler talking about, um, you know, it was the utmost importance that the National Socialist should seek and deserve the violent hatred of his enemies. Such hatred would be proof of the superiority of the National Socialist faith. The best yardstick for the value of a National Socialist attitude, for the sincerity of his conviction and the force of his will is the hostility he receives from the enemy. Right? Like it, it is always sort of a diametric oppositional defining. and And, and I think that's also a little bit you know, it, maybe it's, I wouldn't call it a mass movement per se, but it is the subordination of the individual, of, of individual agency. And then that essentially makes, and I, and I saw this in, in the way that elected officials viewed themselves, you know, it's sort of the the uh, abnegation of any sense of, of leadership or of a position that that, that individual... Who you know has gotten hundreds of thousands of votes? It's why they're in office. They have been elected to a position of leadership, but they oftentimes view themselves as lacking any agency, as being you know beset upon by external factors and trends that they have no ability to control. And I always remember
0: there were all these episodes where uh, members of the New York City Council would um, like protest city council meetings. They would walk out. And- like the way you're the council members. You can't, you're not the protesters. You're not passive, partici- you know, or passive spectators here. If you object so strongly, you literally control the mechanism by which you could affect some kind of change. Why are you standing outside protesting? This doesn't make any sense. I mean...
1: Because it doesn't have to do with the ultimate effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it exactly. has to do with the... Um, the, the the genuflection in the direction of that movement, rather than the concretization of their ideals and beliefs and policy. And I think that uh, that remove, you know, is that's very a very hard. good way of putting it. Yeah, I I
0: think the Hoffer thing, which is hard to tease out from this book because it's so broad and aphoristic, and so much about the sort of nightmare of the mid twentieth century. You know, it's like a a book about civilization destroying itself and about uh freedom turning into a nightmare and so it, you don't necessarily get a sense of who he was as an American. That you know, this is not really a book about American politics, but Hoffer was trying um to maintain the freedom and the agency and, you know, the the free space for mm-hmm. working class Americans, for middle class Americans to concretize their own ideas through forms of free association and work. And, um, you know, speaking of like masses to swarms, he actually he saw the coming of post-industrial yeah. societies as a disaster because he knew that it would empower um, Uh, that it would empower, you know, he called them the scribes, that it it would empower an intelligentsia while while disempowering um, working people. And so, you know, those were his loyalties, such as they were. You know, the only people who really feel at home in this country are the common people. America is God's gift to the poor. And that's why. For the first time in history, the common people could do things on their own. Oh, this is, nobody mentions this. We are a business civilization, this civilization, but this is the only mass civilization there ever was. The masses, Mr. Severi, lot with history to America. And we have been living in common law marriage with it, you know, without the incantations of the intellectuals
2: there. And th- I mean, that goes with the, the sort of trade unionist thing, because you need you need structures and institutions at the local level where people, workers can actually express, express themselves in their agency um, in a meaningful yeah. sense. Right. Uh, which is not just at the mass level. I think one of the, one of the things with the sort of, you know, the internet and everything becoming nationalized is everything turns into mass politics. Right. It's like
0: necessarily not at the. It's not possible at the mass level.
2: Yes. Right. Whereas like, if you are, if you're part of a local union, right? There are going to be specific issues that you are engaged in that don't that don't translate to to national politics necessarily, um, where one can exert agency. But then that that sort of broader unit that you are a part of will have broader political concerns, right?
1: Well, it, but to also get back to the earlier question, like you're you're a congressman. What do you do about this? I mean, I think if you there's been this this incredibly destructive and damaging trend where, you know, if you feel your concern, like we're living entirely in the realm of hypothetical right now, right? I mean, regardless if your policy um, can be borne out or you're, you're, the thing you're advocating for is, is applicable to real life, you never have to suffer the consequences of it so long as it Remains in the hypothetical, right? And, and I love there was a um, there was a Vox podcast. Um, it was about the state and local tax deduction, which you probably don't cover much on on Manifesto. But the but <laughs> it, it, it came around talking about how well you know why do we keep pushing for these changes at the federal level? Why don't we just try to have our state adopt say Medicare for all, which we think will be you know the the solution to healthcare costs in this country? And it's like a good yes exactly i mean this is the problem with a a a very centralized but also very aloof governing mechanism you know we see people trying to work outside of the system because they think the system is irredeemably corrupted right that it, it's spoiled that it it is is beyond repair and beyond salvation when you know the genius of having a federal system of having a 10th amendment that pushes down anything not explicitly given to the federal government down to the states was that you could have those test beds you could have that trial and error you know but if we have our first question be what's the president going to do about something right and it's you you are you are not allowing for the reflection of of movements or of of beliefs or of passions that are actually rooted in something concrete and something practical to kind of see the light of day right and and so by not having release valves and, and mechanisms within the system We're having those valves be clogged you know, through a bureaucratic process or through additional centralization within either the federal level or within the executive level at, at the state or federal level. With that centralization of power and authority, we lose some of that ability to have expressions and to have uh, passions reflected in policy so that you can actually say, oh wow, that was a dumb idea, or or that actually worked and made our lives better and and ultimately alleviated some of the frustration. You know, and so I think this is my what I tried to do in concrete terms. I mean, Phil, you talked about the AUMF, you know, is to reestablish, you know, authority and power that has been eroded from our more democratic institutions, namely the legislatures, you know, where that has been absorbed by the executive, but then also push things from the federal level down to the states, because some of the most practical and happy and satisfied people I know serve on, on well, maybe not the New York City Council, you know, but are engaged in, in municipal or county politics where they can have a sense of agency right? Because the nationalization of all these issues strips the individual from a sense of agency. And without agency, then you're implicitly forced to kind of put yourself within the mass rather than stay. And,
2: and, and the point that Hoffer makes is that hyping up the sense that there is no agency, that the system is so irredeemably broken, that there are not sort of practical fixes outside of kind of victory, Right. We need to, 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 to win and what it what was, what was the Sora Bramari, like reap the rewards in the public square or something. I forget in his dialogue with David French, um, that sense of frustration needs to be constantly accentuated to, 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 to generate the sort of passions, right?
1: But, but it's also been, it, you know, I, I think the through line is that the sort of passionate cultivation or the cultivation of passions on, on, on either side of our, you know, political discourse is sort of, I think our political system has viewed that as like, okay, we'll just kind of put the crazies in the rubber room, uh, and let them kind of bounce around. You know, the challenge is, you know, it's not, you know, crazies in a rubber room. It's sort of a a hornet's nest that you kind of keep wanting to prod because those are the folks who are knocking doors. Those are some of the people who are, who are going to be spraying it along, um, but there's such an arrogance of the people who are doing the prodding and and a shock when they get stung by one of those hornets uh, and and also just a, a complete lack of of conviction uh, and this is to me the through line of our our political system right now and and we talk about kind of silicon valley you were mentioned kind of the social media component like that used to be where revolutionaries went because they wanted to change the world. And now Silicon Valley Bank is so systemically intertwined and important, you know, that it, it has to, you know, it, it spur federal action to I think it's it. related
0: to your earlier point that I think, you know, when you um, when everything gets nationalized, when everything gets scaled up, it becomes almost impossible to maintain conviction because the cause and effect get um cut off from one each other one another the the uh, actual feedback mechanisms of accountability and consequence get eroded to the point where I, you know conviction has no ground mm-hmm. um to stand on
1: there um so okay, it's, so we, we uh, racinate, it's a system that self deracinates
2: yeah although at, at the same time right like we were talking about unions earlier some things have to be nationalized, right? Because the current sort of legal regime that we have, right, is hostile to that. Um, so if you're... The National Labor Review Act is hostile?
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, well... No, I, yeah, it, but, but I think that's also the the there's there's kind of implicit scaremongering in if we didn't have this, everything would fall apart. And I'm a big, I'm a conservative, right? I mm-hmm. I, I love the maxim of Chesterton's fence, right? If, if something is there, appreciate why it's there before you try to kind of change it and upset it, you know, and that doesn't mean that things are perfect. That just means you should kind of be treading a little bit lightly. Uh, but also, I think it's very hard to I I have very little issue with policies that I vehemently disagree with being enacted in places where the consequences of it will be felt by the people who are supporting that policy. And I have very big issues with policies being put in place that the where where you're kind of implicitly kind of being in a, in a patronizing mode or or absolving people of the consequences of their own actions. You know, and I think that is you, you need to allow, you need to give people the room to to explore, which means that there are going to be failures, but as long as those failures can then be appropriately attributed so they cannot be repeated, right? So that those mistakes are learned from, and we've created a system that allows everything to live in the hypothetical, except for the things that are already dysfunctional, in which case it's just a rhetorical game of blame casting, and nobody ultimately has to take a hard Stance, one of the reasons why the AUMF has proven so very difficult. Now, finally, there's some movement on the 0 02 and the 91, but not my 1957 Eisenhower AUMF repeal. There's finally some movement there. But the bottom line is, you know, in Congress, if it's even if it's broke, you don't want to be the one to try to fix it because you're always going to be, you're never going, the, the upside to changing something that is not working is capped and the downside is always exponential in politics it is always exponential and so it takes the individual with a with a will to want to change it and want to be willing to suffer negative political ramifications when there's marginal you know political uh upside to actually push that through you know but you're fighting against a status quo you know that if anything enjoys living in the realm of the rhetorical and 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 is profiting from and benefiting from the absolution of responsibility that they have been conditioned under.
2: Well, maybe we should move on to the uh, to the poem then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now,
0: I guess it's probably straightforward. But had you read this before, Phil? I didn't know this poem.
2: Yeah. So I I had given Jake two poems. One was Ovid in the Third Reich, uh, which probably would have been a little bit more intelligible. Um, uh, but it was longer. No, it's shorter. Oh, is it
0: shorter. I right, forget
2: it. <laughs> um, and, and then, uh, <clears throat> on crowds and power, both Jeffrey Hill poems. Uh, he was somebody, a poet who was always concerned with mass movements and the role of people in the midst of them. Um, and should we, I'll just maybe
0: read. It's a strange poem. I mean, it's like the form of it is strange. It takes its name from a, a book that belongs to the same genre as Hoffer by Elias Canetti, um, called "Crowds in Power," and contains. Phil, it's it's a verbatim quote from the book, right? That's what the middle stands. The middle is.
2: section, yeah, is a verbatim quote from. Yeah, from uh, so it's a
0: strange kind of poem that is a kind of commentary in verse.
2: So, do do you want to read it,
0: Jake? Uh, Yeah, let me pull it up. On reading crowds and power, cloven, we are in corporate, our wounds simple but mysterious. We have some wherewithal to bide our time on earth. Endurance is fantastic, ambulances, battling at intersections, the city Intolerably en fait. My reflexes are words themselves rather than standard, flexures of civil power. In all of this, cachopias, 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 a blessing, as is steady Orion, beloved of poets. Quotidian nature's hours for the time being. I do not know how we should be absolved or what is fate. Um, and okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I would like to know, how do you pronounce, um, Cassiopeia? I thought it
1: was Cassiopeia.
0: From, um, Greek mythology. Yes. Uh, the mother mm-hmm. of Andromeda, but, uh, I can't be pronouncing that right, but, um, it's ancient Greek, so I might be pronouncing it, right? Who knows? <laughs> Who's, Who's to, to say? say? Who's to say? Um, okay. And so then that's the opening. Which is um, not the most straightforward opening. <laughs> and um, actually, I should re- let me read a bit of the middle yeah. because it makes more sense of it. Yeah. The second stanza fame is not fastidious about the lips which spread it. So long as there are mouths to reiterate the one name, it does not matter whose they are. The fact that to the seeker after fame, they are indistinguishable from each other. And are all counted as equal shows that this passion has its origin in the experience of crowd manipulation names collect their own crowds they are greedy live their own separate lives hardly at all connected with the real nature of the men who bear them but hear this that which is difficult preserves democracy you pay respect to the intelligence of the citizen basics are not condescension some tyrants make great patrons. Let us observe this and pass on. Certain directives parody at your own risk. Tread lightly with personal dig- dignity and public image. Safeguard the image of the common man. And um, so that that middle portion, fame is not fastidious about the lips. That's from Kennedy's book, uh, and the rest of it is this sort of commentary in verse. Um, about which uh, I'm sort of, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm more intrigued by the formal qualities of this poem than I am by what it's attempting to say about masses or crowds and power. Um, I find it, you know, it's an interesting, I don't think I've ever seen this before, a sort of, uh, you know, an excerpt from an outside work surrounded by stanzas like that is a new one to me. So
1: I was more taken with that. I like it. Well, I mean, I, I, I to me, and, and I, I'd like, okay, I'll be honest. The first stanza, I don't really understand. Um, and, and maybe it's because of my, uh, insufficient, uh, sophistication to get the contrast between, I'm assuming it's pronounced Cassiopeia and Orion. Um, And beyond just their constellations, but maybe there's some Greek mythology subtext that that is kind of uh, uh, passing me by. But I mean, the thing that strikes me, you know, just that idea that that which is difficult preserves democracy, you pay respect to the intelligence of the citizen, basics are not condescension. Uh, You know, with Hoffer, you know, I think certainly the most successful mass movements are are sort of rare and unique but the underlying sort of appeal to collectivism or or that underlying populism right that is easy that is not a hard thing to appeal to and and making appeals at a kind of higher intellectual plane you know or you know i mean this this sort of distinction between you know a first order solution to a problem that demands a, a, to a second order problem, right? That underpins so much of, of what my experience was in political office and where, you know, what I would hear time and time again is, you know, you're, you're not, um, you know, I, I was, to put it lightly, not a, a booster of, of the former president, um, especially in while I was in office. And, and it was, well, you're condescending or you're being... Um, you're not respecting sort of the wishes of especially kind of primary constituents. And, and to me, what was more respectful, right? I mean, repeating a lie or repeating something that I didn't believe or that I knew most of my colleagues who were repeating it didn't believe, you know, or actually telling somebody the truth, right? I mean, that difference between, you know, the role of, of an elected official as a, uh, as a fiduciary uh, or as a, a, a vessel, to just to to reflect the will rather than to refract it and and take that underlying sentiment and try to channel it towards the ends that maybe somebody isn't fully appreciating are actually reflective, you know, but it's not the reflection in a mirror, you know, it's not parroting back, it's not fan service, it's not crowd service, you know, but it is, you know, the oh. Um, uh, I'm I'm blanking on the kind of conservative philosopher, you know, but that the belief that you are, you know, doing a disservice if you you know subordinate your judgment as a representative before the opinion, you know, of of a constituent. I mean, the the, the whole point of of having somebody in a position of leadership is so that you are electing their judgment, you know, rather than. having somebody who's merely going to poll whatever 51% of the electorate wants at any one given time. I mean to me that's that's anti-representative. That there is a a reason why we have a balance of of you know representation rather than just pure direct democracy on each and every issue, which without you know without frankly anti-democratic checks, like our Bill of Rights, you know, like most of our Constitution, without those mediating factors, Uh, tends towards uh, just being uh, the will of the mob rather than, you know, having some of those tempering uh, factors that can help cool some of the emotions of the moment because not every impulse is right. Uh, Most of philosophy, most of religion is about checking our impulses because what seems right in that moment, you you may have a hangover the next day.
2: Interpersonally, right? If... If Jake did nothing more than affirm every momentary impulse that I had, I would not consider him a friend, right? That would be a way of of patronizing me. You know, the, the reason that I like doing this is with Jake is because he engages w- with what I'm saying and disagrees wrongly. Often. Yeah. <laughs> um, you treat other people as people worthy of self-government if you actually try to engage them, right? I mean, there's, so this is like, this is, and this is related to, you know, Hill connects his poetic project, which I think is, you know, he's difficult, right? He's obscure. He often has a lot of references that you need to know, and the poem might not make any kind of sense. And, and, And I'm, I, my tendency is actually sort of Shy away from that kind of style. I sort of think like Shakespeare was popular, and you know, you're probably not as good as Shakespeare, so you can be intelligible and also deep. Um, But nevertheless, that doesn't mean not like difficulty is always bad. And and Hill in the Paris Review, in response to this question about his difficulty, says, We are difficult. Human beings are difficult. We're difficult to ourselves. We're difficult to each, each other. And we are mysteries to ourselves. We are mysteries to each other. One encounters in any ordinary day far more real difficulty than one confronts in the most intellectual piece of work. Why is it believed that poetry, prose, painting, music should be less than we are? Why does music, why does poetry have to address us in simplified terms when if such simplification were applied to a description of our own inner selves, we would find it demeaning?
0: We're engaged by the mystery of ourselves though. And so the the criteria for me is not uh, is it difficult or is it simple? The criteria is, uh, does it engage me or doesn't it? And I have to say that with this poem, yeah. you've sent me other stuff by Hill that I I found riveting. Yeah. So I've liked some Hill very much. With this poem, the first stanza is so obscure for me yes. that I don't engage until the second stanza. Then I realize the second stanza is the excerpt and I'm and I'm like then I'm puzzling about that. Then I like the third stanza because I understand it, <laughs> and I'm kind of back in it. But the, you know, it's not the the issue that I have with it is not the difficulty. It's the, the form of the difficulty is neither aesthetically representative of an engaging mystery, nor is it um, semantically uh, you know, nor is it captivating, um, at the level of the, the line for me. So I don't mind the difficulty, but I would say somewhere if we're talking about specifically, if we're talking about the relationship between difficulty in this sense and democratic self government, which I think is what we're talking about, where, I would agree with both of you, with what both of you are saying, you know, I mean, pandering to mobs right. is, um, is neither noble nor democratic, um, or maybe it's democratic, but it's certainly not noble. Well, not I, sure, I think it's right?
2: democratic in one sense, right? Like if you think of, if democratic just means doing whatever will appeal to a mass of people, right then then sure like all sorts of things are democratic but if you think of democracy as not just a sort of mechanism right but democracy entails certain other beliefs about people, right? We're not just, de- we, you know, we don't just have a democracy, a representative democracy, right. because uh, we want to avoid tyrants, we want to avoid bad outcomes. We have a, dem- a representative democracy because we think that the individual human being is inherently worthwhile. That's inalienable worthy, rights. As inalienable rights, is worthy of government. And you do respect to what somebody is owed if you afford them some degree of, uh, uh, agency in how this great mass operates and a feeling of, and, and, and a real sort of equality, um, you know, which means a whole variety of things in terms of how we, you know, should organize the government, um, that isn't just about what one can get a big mass of people to assent to, you know, those are sort of those are kind of different questions, right? Because obviously like Jeffrey Hill is not, um, is not art of mass popularity. Right. Um, And yet he's kind of asserting, I mean, in that opening, opening stanza, you know, Cloven We're in corporate, we're sort of, I guess, democratically split, but also one body or wound, simple. I liked
0: that actually that line. I liked a lot. Uh,
2: And then, you know, he's, he's, paints a picture of sort of suffering and celebration in the city. And then says, my reflexes are words themselves rather than the standard flexu- flexures of civil power, right? And he's, he's concerned with that relationship of himself as a poet, right? My, my reflexes are words themselves rather than you know ah. uh, the standard flexures of civil power, right? Where the sort of position of the poet and art is in relationship to a democratic public, Civic Ah, duty, this is why, by the way, later that's what that was, yeah. Okay, he's like, he's he knows, like, some tyrants make great patrons. Let's, uh, you know, let's 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 acknowledge that and move on because we're committed to this democracy thing, right? Um, I got into an argument on Twitter where I'd mentioned uh, Hill and his 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 bit about difficulty and um, uh. Uh, the person I was chatting with was like, well, you know, Savonarola was, you know, instituted the greatest democracy that Florence had had. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) you know, there were pluses and minuses to Savonarola. (laughs) And and yeah, he was not a a great patron of Botticelli's, Um, uh, you know, unless you consider uh, destroying them a a wonderful performance art. But um, nevertheless, Hill wants to say that art... And a poet, even a difficult poet is, has this sort of relationship and responsibility to, um, uh, within these, these kind of questions of a democratic politics. Right. And. and, Okay.
0: I, well, I appreciate that. I mean, that is exactly where the poem lost me. Yeah at my reflexes or word, the words themselves because I liked Cloven We are in corporate or right. wounds.
2: Which is which is why the next there, bit so. is is the, the 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 passage from crowds in power. Yeah. Which is all about that what Hoffer's talking about that deracinated um, yeah, yeah. you know individual where, where fame is not fastidious about the lips which spread it, which is a great line, right? And, and also, you know, names collect their own crowds, they are greedy, live their own separate lives, hardly at all connected with the real natures of the men who bear them, right? If that democratic ethic is about respecting the individual, right? Um, and their capacities uh, as sort of richly complex in the way that Hill thinks that we are which entails certain things in terms of how we ought engage with our, how we ought engage with democratic politics, right? One's responsibilities as a, as a individual citizen, I think are to engage complexly with, with democratic politics. I think that sort of studiously avoiding mindless partisanship, right? Is the individual's responsibility, right? Even if it offers assets to the politician, right? Um, and that we also have i think responsibilities in terms of how we relate to art and from hill's perspective how we create it and that those are related things for him.
0: Yeah. Gentlemen, can I uh would you mind if I read a a fine quote from Mr. Hoffer here to end this momentous podcast with our friend Peter Meyer. Yeah. Please So I believe this is from Hoffer's Notebooks. I'm not sure this was published anywhere. Um, I found it uh, in something by his biographer, Tom Bethel. But uh, in any event, here it is. Practically all artists and writers are aware of their destiny and see themselves as actors in a fateful drama. With me, nothing is momentous. Obscure youth, glorious old age, fateful coincidences, nothing really matters. I have written a number of good sentences. I have kept free of delusions. I am going to die soon. I don't know whether that's uh, democratic or anti-democratic, but it does seem to me uh, to be a man trying to reckon with the truth uh, for himself and being not overly harsh nor overly sentimental in his estimation.
2: So well, I mean this this goes with but, hill. Tread lightly with personal dignity and public image. Safeguard the image of the common man.
0: There you go. Common man, don't worry. We're looking out for you. That's what this <laughs> podcast is about. Common man. I know you're listening out there in your uh sports utility truck or your uh Budweiser, whatever you drink, common man. We're Mountain Dew. I, I, I'm with you. I'm connected, and um, this Jeffrey Hill is for you, bud. I,
1: I will say, I am shocked that you record this podcast in the morning. The, these are conversations that, getting back to that image of the common man, and maybe blending it with the with a fine salon, um, I, I'm, I'm perplexed that there isn't more of a a a lubricating factor beyond caffeine. Uh, in in some of these. Well, I'll say
0: we do have a live event coming up in October, and I'm told that there will be a lot of free booze. That's the rumor that I've heard. Um, I don't know who's providing it. I'm not providing it, but uh, somebody (laughs) somewhere started a rumor. Just bring your drink tickets and we'll make it happen. Peter, thanks so much for
1: joining us. Jake, Phil, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time.
2: When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.